Coming up next, please join us for Real Israel Talk Radio. This is episode 128. Shalom, I'm Avi Ben Mordechai. Welcome once again to Real Israel Talk Radio. This is podcast episode 128 and a part 15 analysis of Yeshua's last Passover week timeline of events leading up to his crucifixion and his third day resurrection. In our previous analysis, which was a podcast episode 127 and program series part 14, I walked you through event number 11 of the 27 events that I have identified as part of the actions shaping the last week of Yeshua's earthly ministry, resulting in his fifth day of the week crucifixion, or what we would refer to as a Thursday, and his seventh day resurrection. Yeshua referred to that event as three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. From the previous program, we learned the following. Point number one, according to the Tzadok priestly solar calendar, it was Tuesday evening, the 14th of the first Hebrew month of the new year. That is, Aviv 14. For Yeshua and his family of students, it is Passover, late under the cover of darkness, in an upper guest room belonging to a Tzadok priestly family, or so it appears to be. Point two, according to the Judeans and the priests of the standing Jerusalem temple, at sunset on the twelfth day of the first Hebrew month of the year, that started the beginning of the thirteenth of Aviv, or the thirteenth of Nisan. Point number three, beginning with sunset on the third day of the week, on what we would call a Tuesday evening, when it was still two evenings before the Judeans of Jerusalem, when they had reclined to celebrate their Passover, you can see John 13.1 for a reference to that idea. Yeshua and his spiritual family reclined to partake of the true biblical Passover of Exodus chapters 12 to 13. Point number four from our previous study, the Mount of Olives is of paramount importance. The many olive trees that grow on the Mount of Olives were in Second Temple times responsible for the giving of the mountain's name. Point number five. The Mount of Olives, as cited in the Jerusalem Talmud and the Midrash, is referred to as Har HaMishcha, which means the Mount of Anointment. However, given the idolatry and corruption that was so much a part of the Jerusalem spiritual leadership, Har HaMishcha, that is the Mount of Anointment, also came to be called Har HaMashchit, that is, the Mount of Corruption, which is a play on the Hebrew term Mishcha, or anointment. And you can see this in 2 Kings 23.13. Furthermore, anointment in Hebrew, Mishcha, also means to pull, draw out, or lead something away 
or someone to or towards an intended destination. This is the same wordplay that is used when Yeshua was led away to his crucifixion. Point number six, we learned that Yeshua prayed on the Mount of the Anointment, that he was arrested as a religious criminal on the Mount of Anointment. He was crucified on the Mount of Anointment. He was also buried on the Mount of Anointment. He was resurrected on the third day on the Mount of Anointment. He ascended to the right hand of the Father from the Mount of Anointment. And finally, he will return to the Mount of Anointment to present himself as Israel's King Messiah, Son of David. And finally, based on Matthew 26.30, we read the following. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So now this is event number 12, or the overnight of what we would call Tuesday, on the Tzedok calendar. Yet it's still two nights before the national Passover of the Jews or the Judeans. We're going to look now at the arresting officers in the Judean high court. Let's start with John 18.12. Then the detachment of the troops and the captain and the officers of the Judeans arrested Yeshua and bound him. Those who were sent to apprehend Yeshua in the garden of the Mount of Anointment or the Mount of Olives were officers dispatched by the temple Kohanim or the priests and the religious Jews or the Judeans. Now, these officers were sent to do all of their dirty work to arrest Yeshua and deliver him to the religious authorities for breaching Jewish religious law, I'm sure among many other things as well. These officers of the religious court are referred to in Greek as hyperites, literally an under-rower. That is, they were assistants, attendants, helpers, and servants to the priestly class, which is the possible equivalent of what is called a chazan in the synagogue of today's Judaism. In Yeshua's time, some among them were also members of a society of religious separatists and scholars, as well as enforcers of Judean oral tradition. These were called the Pharisees. They pursued a decades-long struggle against the sons of Tzedok, seeking to democratize the Judean religion by removing religious authority away from the control of the true temple priests of the sons of Tzedok. They focused on prayer and studying God's laws, both oral and written. Among the religious court attendants, you can see Luke 22.52 and Acts 26.16, there were some Pharisees such as Nicodemus meaning not all were convinced of the charges being leveled against Yeshua, as we learn from John 7, 45-49. Quote, Then the officers came to the chief priests and the Pharisees, who said to them, 
Why have you not brought him? The officers answered, No man ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered them, Are you also deceived? Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law, referring to the oral law, is accursed. This past religious wrestling match then sets up our understanding of a decades-long conflict between the Judeans and the sons of the true Tzedok priesthood, at least according to Deuteronomy or Devarim 17, 9-10, Ezekiel 44, 15-16, and Ezekiel 44, 23-24. Let's take a look at these passages for context. Devarim, or Deuteronomy 17, 9-10. And you shall come to the Kohanim, the Levites, and to the judge in those days, and inquire. They shall pronounce upon you the sentence of judgment. You shall do according to the sentence which they pronounce upon you in that place which Jehovah chooses." And you shall be careful to do according to all that they order you. Later on, under King David, these priests and judges were defined as the sons of Tzedok. Ezekiel 44, 15-16 But the priests, the Levites, that is, the sons of Tzedok, who kept charge of my sanctuary— when the sons of Israel went astray from me, they shall come near me to minister to me, and they shall stand before me to offer to me the fat and the blood, says the Master Jehovah. They shall enter my sanctuary, and they shall come near my table to minister to me, and they shall keep my charge. Ezekiel 44, 23-24 and they shall teach my people between the holy and the unholy, and cause them to discern or understand between the unclean and the clean. In controversy, they shall stand as judges and judge according to my judgments. They shall keep my laws and my statutes in all my appointed meetings, and they shall hallow my Sabbaths. Based on the Hebrew text from the divine decree that we've just read, they shall keep my laws and my statutes in all my appointed meetings. The term appointed meetings refers to Jehovah's Moedim, meaning his festivals and celebratory Sabbaths. In Yeshua's time, it was not the sons of Tzedok that had teaching and judging authority. Rather, it was the Judean scribes and the Pharisaic enforcers of Jewish oral law who had full authority over all the religious functions of the time. Now, let's briefly speak about the one who is so named John or John Mark. An attendant. In Greek, the word is hyperites. You can see this in Acts 13.5, 
and it refers to him as a servant or attendant to Shaul or Paul. The hyperites functioned as a servant to Pharisees and temple priests. This you can look at in John 18, 3 and John 18, 12. He was also known as a young man in Greek, Neoniskos. And there you can see Matthew 19, 20 through 22 and was from a wealthy family. There you can see it in Mark 10, 22. Furthermore, John Mark was a known ruler of the Judean priestly class, referred to in Greek as archon. There you can see Luke 18, 18. So apparently, he must have also been a high priestly scribe scholar, or in Greek, a grammatius. Given that he was in the know to some very specific Sanhedrin court deliberations and declarations, functioning much like a court stenographer during the trial of Yeshua. For certain, no one outside of the circle of Judean priestly scribes would have had access or knowledge of exactly what was said and to whom it was said in the Judean court proceedings that took place on that Wednesday, the first day of the festival of matzah, or the festival of unleavened bread, based on the Tzedok calendar. Now, I believe that it was this John Mark who was briefly present at the arrest of Yeshua in the garden on that Tuesday overnight. It appears from Mark 14, 51 through 52, that it was this John Mark who was said to be the, quote, certain young man that quickly fled the scene of the arrest, leaving behind his priestly garment. In Greek, this is the term sindon, which would have clearly identified him as one with official religious status in the Judean court. Take a look at Mark 14, 51 through 52. Now a certain young man followed him, having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body, and the young man laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked." The statement in Mark 14:51, quote, a certain young man, does suggest that John Mark did not want anyone to know that he was speaking of himself. With the arrest of Yeshua, I think, rather than risking a compromise of his own identity as a secret believer in Yeshua, this John Mark instead quickly decided to make a run for it, even at the expense of leaving behind his garment of distinction, his sindon. The linen cloth, or again in Greek the sindon, belonging to that of a certain man, was not an average garment that would belong to anyone from the poor or middle class of that society. Rather, the garment was made of fine linen, which could only belong to a wealthy man who was also a high-ranking young court officer of priestly descent. 
such as a secretary or scribe charged with the task of recording everything that was said in the legal proceedings. If all this is true, we can be certain that John Mark knew many of those among the families of Annas and Caiaphas, the priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and yes, even all the other attendants of the court. How else would John Mark specifically know the name of the man, Malchus, whose ear Peter cut off with his sword? Furthermore, how is it that Peter was given access to the family priestly courtyard beyond the gates leading into the area where Yeshua was being questioned? In other words, how is it that Peter was in the porch area of the courtyard belonging to the private residence of Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas? Well, could it be that John Mark was a secret believer in Yeshua, and he was working for Annas and used his status and position in the court to convince the servant girl at the gate to let Peter into the courtyard. Oh, I think quite possibly yes. I also believe it is entirely possible that this man, John Mark, was one and the same as the man who wrote the Gospel of John, meaning that the Gospels of John and Mark came from the same person, Yohanan or John being his Hebrew name and Mark or Marcus being his Latin name. Let's now move on to event number 13 for Tuesday Passover night or the overnight based on the Tzedok calendar. This is about Yehuda's kiss of betrayal. Let's look at Mark 14, 43 through 46. And immediately while he was still speaking, referring to Yeshua, Yehuda, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, he immediately went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. The question that should be asked here is, why did Yehuda or Judas identify Yeshua to the temple priesthood attendants using a kiss? Why does John Mark give us this particular detail of the story? You see, since John Mark was a wealthy young man, as well as a scholar, a priestly ruler, and a scribe, I think the answer is found in the Messianic prophecy of Psalm 2, a teaching that Mark likely knew very well from his own Jewish studies. I'm going to include some editorial notes in my reading of the psalm. Why do the nations rage? Nations here is the term goyim, or what we would say are Gentiles and the people plot a vain thing. 
vain referring to the concept of an empty thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Jehovah and against his anointed. The rulers here are the archon in Greek, and the term anointed is mishcha, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens will laugh. Jehovah will hold them in derision, meaning he's going to taunt them. And then he shall speak to them in his hot anger and distress them in his deep displeasure or his anger, saying, quote, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. I will declare the decree. Jehovah has said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you or birthed you. Ask of me, and I will give the nations, or in Hebrew, the goyim, for your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. The concept of the judges here would be the sons of Tzadok, or the Tzadokim, because it was during David's reign when the sons of Tzadok were given this official charge from Jehovah to be the judges and teachers of all Israel. So David goes on to write Psalm 2, saying, Serve Jehovah with fear, the awe of respect, and rejoice with trembling. He then says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. This idea of kiss the Son, I think, refers to the great judge of the Tzadok priesthood in the days when David was the king of all Israel. The Son is that great judge, the Tzadik, or the true high priest or Kohen of the sons of Tzadok. This is a messianic image of the word made flesh. So David then says, when his wrath is kindled but a little, blessed are those who put their trust in him. This being said, let's now focus our attention on the statement, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Here is how the text of the Hebrew is presented. Nashkubar pen ye'enaf, v'tovdu derech ki ivar ki ma'at afo ashrei kol chosebo. Based on the overall context, I have chosen to interpret this differently than most biblical scholars might approach the idea. So I ask you, please permit me to present to you my more uninhibited paraphrase that feels a bit more contextually relevant to what's being said. Again, Psalm 2.12. All of you, the sun is your armor. Turn the angry rage around because all of you will destroy the way. For his anger will be kindled a little. Happy are those. 
all the covered in him. Now, with my rather creative rendering of Psalm 2, I suggest, like many, that the Son is the great Sadiq, the Mashiach, the Word. However, Nashkubar, which is often translated as kiss the Son, can also be understood from Hebrew that the Son, or the Mashiach, He is our shield of armor, or that He is our armory shield. Now, when we come back after our brief break, we'll continue looking into these ideas from Psalm 2. Stay with us. I'm Avi ben Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio. Once again, Shalom. I'm Avi Ben Mordechai, and this is the second half to our podcast here on Real Israel Talk Radio. I'm addressing the issues of Psalm 2 in reference to Yehuda's kiss of betrayal. We're looking here at the end of Psalm 2, verses 10 through 12. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. The concept of the judges here would be the sons of Tzedok, or the Tzedokim, because it was during David's reign when the sons of Tzedok were given this official charge from Jehovah to be the judges and teachers of all Israel. So David goes on to write Psalm 2, saying, Serve Jehovah with fear, the awe of respect, and rejoice with trembling. He then says, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. This idea of kiss the Son, this is a messianic image of the Word made flesh. So David then says, When his wrath is kindled but a little, Blessed are those who put their trust in Him. Based on the overall context, I have chosen to interpret this differently than most biblical scholars might approach the idea. Again, Psalm 2.12. All of you, the sun is your armor. Turn the angry rage around because all of you will destroy the way, for his anger will be kindled a little. Happy are those, all the covered in him. Nashkubar, which is often translated as kiss the sun, can also be understood from Hebrew that the sun, or the Mashiach, he is our shield of armor, or that He is our armory shield. Now, we know this from the words of Scripture. Here's Deuteronomy, or Devilim, 33, 29. Happy are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by Jehovah, the shield of your help, or if you will, 
the shield of armor or the armory shield of your help. You can also see a reference to Nehemiah or Nehemiah chapter 3 verse 19 for this idea of the shield of armor or the armory shield in relation to the term Nashkubar. We know that in Aramaic, bar means a son, such as when we say bar mitzvah. But bar in Hebrew in Genesis 42, 1 through 3 and 42, 25 means sheaves of clean threshed wheat grain to sustain life. So here are the passages in question. Genesis 42, 1 through 3. When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there, that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Here the term grain in Hebrew is bar. Also, Genesis 42, 25. Then Joseph gave a command to fill their sacks with clean threshed wheat grain. Clean threshed wheat grain is the Hebrew term bar. Now later, just before Joseph died, there is this storyline that Joseph's brothers were sorely afraid of Joseph after their father, Jacob, passed away. They thought that since their father was gone, Joseph was really going to let them have it for what they did to him. But this is actually not the case. Look at Genesis 50, verses 17 through 21. Now, please... Forgive the trespass of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke of him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of Elohim? But as for you... You meant evil against me. Elohim meant it for good, in order to bring it about as this day, to save many people alive. Now, therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So this leads us to the next thing that we see in Psalm 2.12, which is a warning to the Hebrew nation, who are in fact called Goyim, or if you want to say, Gentiles. Because in Scripture, it says it that way. Here's Deuteronomy or Devarim 4.27 in Hebrew. However, we have been called to not act like the Goyim around us who do not put their trust in Jehovah. So we learn from the opening statement of Psalm 2, verse 1, Why do the nations rage? That is, why do the Goyim, or the Gentiles, rage? 
and the people plot a vain or empty thing. It's interesting to note this same statement from Psalm 2 verse 1 is quoted as applying to the corrupt priests and religious leaders of the temple in Acts chapter 4 verses 24 through 26. So they clearly understood Psalm 2-1 to be applying to those priests and religious leaders in the Jerusalem of their day. And for us today, Jehovah has a different calling for his true family of the faith. See Exodus 19.6. So we are to essentially get our unmitigated rage under control and stop behaving like the nations surrounding us. We are to turn our anger around and live our everyday lives by learning to trust in the covering that we have through Jehovah's anointed one, that is, his Messiah. This is based on the closing statement that's found in Psalm 2, verse 12. Happy are those all the covered in him. And I'm taking this straight from the Hebrew text. This is the built-in theme of the Passover that Yeshua played out for us in Exodus 12, verse 4, on that final night when he celebrated the Passover. Yeshua's reference to Exodus 12, verse 4, is quite clear if we render it from Hebrew, which more accurately says, A man, according to his eating of the lamb, he will be covered for the sake of the lamb, or literally, by the lamb's covering over them. Okay, so now let's revisit Psalm 2.12 in this context. If we do not turn around our rage or stubborn anger against Jehovah's Sadiq or his anointed one or high judge, and we continue harboring rebellion against him, we will by our own hands destroy the way or the path that can restore us in teshuva or repentance back to Jehovah. We will lose our compass heading in a very real sense, much like what Thomas said to Yeshua. In John 14, 5 through 6, Thomas said to him, Master, we don't know where you are going, and how can we know the way? Yeshua said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So Jehovah closes the prophetic words of Psalm 2.12 concerning his anointed one, saying, Happy are those all the covered in him. Again, this is what it says in the Hebrew text. Like Yehuda or Judas, if we remain stubborn, wrathful, and angry at Jehovah, and we fight against him and against his redemption plan, which is accomplished through his anointed king, then it deeply distresses him as our father 
who loves his son but hates his son's continued uprising and rebellion. This is what is alluded to in the book of Acts, chapter 5, verses 34 through 39, when a Pharisee named Gamliel testified to his fellow scholars in the Sanhedrin, Keep away from these men and let them alone. For if their plan or if this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of Elohim or God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against Elohim or God. You see, Jehovah does not want to be angry with any of us. He would prefer that we humble ourselves and receive his redemption plan, which requires that we are redemptively covered under the Passover lamb. Why then did Yehuda or Judas betray Yeshua with a kiss? Well, it appears to me that Yehuda was hoping for a national redemption in the natural. In other words, in the here and now. He was not convinced that Jehovah's plan was for spiritual redemption through his anointed one and that this spiritual redemption should come first. This was not in Yehuda's thinking process because he was looking to the natural man for a national redemption first. This set him against Jehovah's will and plan. So he chose not to go along with Jehovah's redemption program, which was feeding his angst against Yeshua. Essentially, he said, and I'm going to paraphrase it, Come on, Yeshua, stop the nonsense that you're putting into motion. Stop it. We need you in the here and now to fight against all this Roman oppression. We don't need you to bring us some pie-in-the-sky redemption dream. We've got to get this done now while we can, and you're the man for it. Now, if I'm correct in my understanding of this situation, I tell you, it makes good sense why this statement was recorded in Mark 14, 44. Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. You see, I think that Yehuda or Judas still had hope that he could stop Yeshua from carrying out his suicide mission, as Judas might have understood it. Therefore, he told the court officers to lead Yeshua away safely. In other words, tuck him away and put him under guard so he can't carry out this crazy suicide plan of his. But after Yeshua was presented to his religious Judean enemies who absolutely hated Yeshua and those who followed him and hated their understanding of Ezekiel 44, 15 through 24 as a teaching concerning the authority of the sons of Tzadok, it was nothing short of a declared war of the Pharisees against the sons of Sadok. They, the Pharisees, were determined to see Yeshua 
hang for his crimes against everything Jewish. They were bent on Yeshua's destruction. And I can see this through the eyes of Yehuda or Judas. He must have felt utterly betrayed by the Judeans when they sought to have him crucified because it appears likely that he had struck a deal with them to keep Yeshua alive so that he could be repurposed for a collective national redemption plan in the natural, that is, in the here and now, much like how everything played out in the days of the Hashmonaim or the Maccabees when they were coming against the Greeks nearly two centuries prior. It's almost as if this is an entire replay of that event. When Judas saw that he was betrayed by the Judeans or the Jews, it was much, much too late. He could not turn it all around. So he tried to return the money, but his betrayers said to him, as it's quoted in Matthew 27, 3 through 4, seeing that he, referring to Yeshua, had been condemned, he was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, quote, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. In absolute despair, Judas went out and hung himself. Okay, with that said, let's now go on to event number 14. It's still Tuesday, Passover night. It's the overnight on the Tzedok calendar. Let's now move on to the Annas Inquisition. Now, according to John 18.13, we learn this. And they led him away to Annas first, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Keep in mind that it is still late on the night of Passover, that is, Tuesday, the 14th of the first Chodesh, or the first month of the new year, at least according to the Tzedok calendar reckoning system. As I see the chronology, it appears to be about 0200 hours during the night, or what we would call, according to our reckoning, 2 a.m., This is when the third unit of the Judean temple guard always replaced the previous guard, on duty from 2200 hours, or about 10 o'clock, to 0200 hours, or 2 in the morning. So just before this, Yeshua permitted himself to be arrested by the Jerusalem priesthood officers and led away under guard. Now recall that the Hebrew term ha-mishcha refers to the amount of anointment, but due to all the religious corruption of the time, the amount of anointment came to be called har hamashchit, that is, the amount of corruption, which is a play on the Hebrew term mishcha for anointment. And you can see this in 2 Kings 23.13. Furthermore, Anointment in Hebrew, mishcha, also means to pull, draw out, 
or even lead something or someone away to or toward an intended destination. Well, this is the same wordplay that is used when Yeshua was led away following his arrest, leading to his inquisition, trial, and ultimately to his crucifixion. So you see, this is all Hebrew wordplay that identifies Yeshua in his fulfillment of the prophetic words of the coming Messiah in Isaiah 53. At that time, in the garden on the Mount of Anointment, his disciples scattered. And what happened next? John Mark must have been there because it says that this certain young man, not specifically identified by name, but we think it's John Mark, that he ran away without his special coat of distinction. The policing attendants of the temple priests then handed Yeshua over to a religious Judean inquisition, but it was never meant to be an official court proceeding. It was more about a kind of legal discovery to determine if there was even enough evidence to crucify him. The legal part of Yeshua's official trial could only happen later that day, which would be Wednesday after sunrise that morning. Jewish law forbids courtroom proceedings under the cover of darkness. For the Judeans, Yeshua's inquisition of discovery occurred during the overnight hours on the 13th day of the first month on their calendar. And so, according to Gospel writer Luke, we get this narrative in Luke 22:54. Having arrested him, they led him and brought him into the high priest's house, that is, the private palace residence of Annas, but Peter followed at a distance. Here again, you can see the wordplay going on when they arrested him and they led him away and brought him to the high priest's house. Again, that leading is a play on the Hebrew term anointment or mishcha, which is also a play on the Hebrew word messiah, mashach. So then we ask exactly who was the Judean high priest in the year of Yeshua's crucifixion. According to all records that we have, it was Caiaphas, the son-in-law to Annas. This means that Caiaphas operated under a kind of shadow government run by Annas, who could still retain his invisible power of authority. The full legal name of Annas was Hananiah ben Seth, that is, Annas son of Seth. Nonetheless, he was called Annas and Jerusalem's high priest. During the years of Yeshua's boyhood, Annas was an official Jerusalem temple high priest until the Romans decided to depose him and replace him in what we would call year 15, when Tiberius Caesar was involved as a co-regent with his father-in-law, Augustus Caesar. During the high priest years of Annas, while functioning in his office, 
he was a firm, authoritative figure. If there were religious issues to deal with, one always answered to Annas. In his senior years, long after he was deposed by the Romans, he still managed to maintain a very strong grip on all religious authority in Jerusalem. I think the patriarchal power of Annas could be described as much like that of a fatherly mafia-type boss. Annas had five sons who held coveted temple positions. One of his daughters was given in marriage to Joseph Caiaphas, also identified as Joseph of the family of Katros. As we will come to understand shortly, a nighttime interrogation by the high court of the land, especially in a capital case, would never, never have occurred. If Yeshua's inquisition was meant to be illegal, I believe that we would have been told about it in the gospel records. But there is absolutely no mention anywhere that those who were questioning him were doing anything illegal according to Jewish law, because it was not a legal trial that they were doing. Oh yes, it was late at night, but it was not an official court proceeding. And this brings us to the end of this podcast, because I'm out of time. When we come back on the next podcast, part 16 in this series, we'll conclude with the next episode and deal with these matters. I want to thank you much for joining me for this study today. Let's continue when we return. I'm Avi Ben-Mordechai, and this is Real Israel Talk Radio.